Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, we have blown by the halfway point for this class. So today, I thought it might be a good idea, since we're now halfway through, to take a little stock, remind ourselves what it is that we're doing, if anything, in this, uh, in this course. So what I'd like to do is to spend a couple of minutes, maybe no more than a half an hour, I hope, uh, just with a quick review. I wanted to start by noting that this very week, I noticed in the papers that yet another report, did anybody see this in the news? Do we even notice this stuff anymore? It's like, yes, another report. Warning us that, yes, once again, we have to act now. If we don't act now, it will be too late. Have we heard that before? I mean, how many times can you tell us this is your last warning? I feel it's like when I'm trying to threaten my kid to make him do his piano lesson or something, and I start issuing ultimatums, and there's a certain point where he just stops listening to me, and the ultimatums serve no purpose. And we're a little bit, I think, at that, at that level. So once again, we've been told that we have to act, that we have no time, and that if we don't take urgent measures, urgent actions now, that we're all, whatever, that we will blow past the various targets that we as a global society have set for ourselves. Okay, do you think we're gonna be taking urgent action? Do you, do you feel that urgent action taking shape? Like tomorrow you're gonna to wake up with a sense of urgency you didn't have today and say, oh my God, we should be doing something. Is that gonna happen? Do you think is any society that's gonna say, oh my God, let's change our ways and so on? I doubt it. I'm gonna boldly predict that 2023 will be the highest level of carbon emissions yet in our, in our global history. And I'm gonna predict that 2024 will be higher than 2023. In fact, I'm not sure when exactly, but I doubt that the curve will start to balance out until maybe, maybe the end of the decade, right? Possibly. So we are in no position to act upon all of, these, all of these final warnings, and I'm sure that this final warning will be followed by another final warning. So let's remind ourselves why it is that in the context of this clearly present threat, which is having already significant consequences, and we're only at the very beginning of what's going to be a whole chain of catastrophe. Why it is that we don't take action? And the answer, as we discussed already in this class, particularly at the beginning, was we are stuck inside of our market society, and we are stuck with our market agency. We are all market agents, as I have reminded you many times. We have no freedom, we have no liberty, outside of a market context. We need the market in order to keep ourselves alive, and therefore the way we frame or shape or understand or, or sort of position ourselves is going to be entirely dependent upon that market function. Since that market function is heavily reliant itself on carbon energy use, to tell us that we have to somehow decarbonize is to tell us, in effect, that we have to stop being market agents. And that's impossible. You might as well tell people you should stop breathing. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. And it's very unlikely to happen in your lifetime. You are going to spend your entire life with your freedom and your liberty circumscribed by the simple reality that you are a market agent based on the markets as we have formulated them now. Does that mean that we are condemned forever to live according to this particular market paradigm? And the answer, I hope, as we've seen in this class, based on the fact that human beings have come up with many different ways of organizing themselves, the answer is no, that eventually we will get to a new paradigm and that new paradigm will address the existing problems in this paradigm. 
That's how new paradigms work. This is the famous idea of paradigm shift as laid out by the eminent historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, in his book, The Structures of the Scientific Revolution. Let's remember, though, what a paradigm shift signifies. It doesn't signify just change, although change is clearly the fundamental goal of paradigm shift, but it also signifies a process of change. And that process of change does not look like a kind of steady movement towards some better position. Instead, what it looks like is the gradual accretion of evidence that the position you're in now is not very good, and eventually the sense or the feeling or the sentiment of that inadequacy of the existing paradigm becomes so great, so irresistible, that eventually the paradigm rather all of a sudden shifts to a different, to a different footing. So when Kuhn was discussing this in his book, The Structures of the Scientific Revolution, he used the famous example of the Copernican idea that instead of the Earth being at the center of the universe, instead he had the Copernican model of heliocentrism, that the sun is at the center of our, of our system. And that was because Copernicus had measured or collected data that simply was not consistent with the prevailing model of an Earth-centered universe and was much more consistent with the idea of the sun at the center of things with the Earth going around it. But I remind you that Copernicus, some of you may remember this, Copernicus, who published his work on the revolution of celestial bodies in 1543, Copernicus waited until he had died for that work to be published. He ordered it to be published posthumously. He did not want it up to appear in his lifetime because he was afraid of what the consequences might be for him since he was, in effect, taking a stand against the prevailing thought as it was represented by the church. This is very symptomatic of the problem of an existing paradigm. It enfolds us within a broad scheme of thinking, and it's very difficult to think differently. And when you do think differently, you feel exposed, and it seems sometimes ridiculous or absurd or fantastical or sometimes even, even dangerous. So what we generally find is that in the context of a paradigm that is not working, there is a gradual accretion of evidence, and eventually that evidence becomes so great that people simply move over to a different or to a better paradigm. Now, when you have the accretion of evidence that indicates the existing paradigm is adequate, one of the ways to think about that is making increasingly obvious the internal contradictions of the paradigm. That was the problem they had with the Earth-centered model of the universe. They had these very complex models that were designed to somehow explain the observations of different bodies in the, in the heavens to fit the idea that Earth was in the middle and it involved all kinds of crazy, weird paths and so on. And you could replace that with the sun and everything simplified. But the idea was that in the existing model, there were ways that you could somehow justify what you were seeing if you were willing to make these kinds of irrational proposals about the behavior of planets and the like. And so what you find is that those contradictions start to become more and more apparent. And that's what we're living through, I think. You will live your life, almost all of your life, inside of that contradiction. You have no choice but to live your life using the market. You will invest over your lifetime tens, hundreds of thousands of euros to make yourself a compelling market entity. How many of you here, for example, in this room, already in your first year of university, already know that you probably have to go do a master's degree after you finish with this nonsense? Show of hands, be honest, yes, there you go, right? On behalf of the university educational complex, I thank you profoundly, it pays my salary. Now, let me ask you a related question. You know you have to go do a master's. Is that because you have a, 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 just an unquenchable thirst for more learning? That your happiest moments are spent in classrooms like this one, 
listening to people like me showing you PowerPoints about topics you don't understand nor care about? Is that why? Or are you doing a master's degree because you feel that that is what the job market, the labor market, requires of you in order for you to be able to have an optimized earnings potential? And be honest, what's the answer? Education or money? Money, right? If I pay 25,000 euros to get a master's, the idea is that that investment will pay for itself where? From the market, from the labor market. It is an investment in yourself that reflects your market agency, which is, if you think about it, odd, because the product that you're consuming, education, you're not consuming it for what it is, education. Instead, you're consuming, you're consuming it for another reason, which is optimized labor earnings in a wage-driven market context. This is the market paradigm in which we live. This is why that decision, even at the age of 18 or 19, to you feels very rational and important, right? Of course, you'll do a master's degree. That's what you need to do. Because those are the choices that this existing market paradigm provides to us. However, at the same time as you're investing all this money in yourself to make you an optimized market agent, to go out and get a job, to join the production function, what will that production function necessarily require? It will require that you become an intense user of carbon because that's what our production in the marketplace uses at its very base. So you are going to be an intense consumer of carbon at the very time that you know that carbon is noxious and deleterious, not only to your future, but for the future of your children and for their children. That puts you in a rather unusual position. You have to spend your own money, or let's be honest, your parents' money, in order to optimize your position as a market agent, in order then that you may go out and make the problems surrounding you worse. That's kind of a shitty position to be in. That's a contradictory position to find yourself in. Should we simply accept that as a baseline condition of how we get to live our lives? And the answer for all of us in this room is yes, because what alternative do we have? I cannot lead us like some sort of modern day Moses to set up some glorious commune where we decide single-handedly to ignore reality and pretend that somehow we can make a go of it on our own. That is not going to happen. I'm sorry if I'm disappointing some of you. But can we talk about it? We may not be able to change it, but can we talk about it? Can we have discussions about it? Absolutely. That is how paradigms change. Paradigms change first through the discourse and then eventually through the accumulation of that discourse New ideas are generated, and there comes a moment when people act upon those new ideas. And the strange thing about a paradigm is that when you're living inside of one, no alternative seems possible. That is the situation that we're in. You could not, if you sat down for a whole day, realistically imagine an alternative to this existing market scheme that surrounds you and circumscribes your agency. This is just the way the world works. It's how things are. But as we know, it's only been that way for about 200 years. Your great-great-great-grandparents existed in a totally different paradigm. And if we go back 5,000 years, we see a totally different paradigm operative then. And if we go to different parts of the world, we observe completely different paradigms in action. So the irresistibility of an existing paradigm simply reflects the power of paradigm. And here's an example. If you had asked somebody, say, in 1600, your average person, which presumably would have been some sort of peasant or laborer or some kind of thing like that. If you had asked an average person in 1600, in the European context I refer, do they deserve 
political rights. What would they have said? Of course not. I, I can barely feed and clothe myself. Why on earth would I? What would I do with political rights? In fact, they would not have understood the question because the concept of political rights in 1600 didn't really exist, at least as we understand the term today. And that situation prevails. But starting in about 1700, maybe a little earlier, people started to ask that question. Why don't people deserve political dignity? Why is it that we're stuck inside of a feudal system where political power, political authority, is concentrated only in the hands of a very few, and the vast majority of people lie outside of a, a system of political dignity? And so for 100 or, say, maybe 120, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on when you want to do the math, a discourse developed. People like Thomas Hobbes, people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, people like Voltaire, figures of the Enlightenment. And after 100 or so years of people talking about whether the average person, not just the wealthy, the aristocratic elites and so on, deserve political dignity, what happened? A volcano blew up in Iceland, the crops failed, the French Revolution broke out, and what was the consequence of the French Revolution? What is the great slogan of the French Revolution? Liberty, fraternity, and equality. Note, it's very gendered. Ladies, no rights yet. What was a guiding principle of the French Revolution? That all citizens, all people, all men are citizens, and all citizens have what? Political dignity. A hundred years or two hundred years of discourse, and bang, all of a sudden, we've invented or we have the first attempt to create some kind of democracy. Now, they rolled that back as quickly as they could, but once that principle had been articulated, we move forward another hundred years, and by the end of the 19th century, pretty much every developed, what we think of as developed or industrial country, has some form of universal male suffrage. Things like literacy tests, property tests, and so on have been discarded in favor of a model that simply says every male individual deserves dignity. What about the ladies? When did ladies get the right to vote? Ladies in the room, do you know anything about the trajectory of feminist? 1949 is correct for one country. Which country gave the right to vote in 1949? France. France. Shameful. Shameful. <laughs> Why was France so late, by the way, in, 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 in giving the vote to women, do you know? So the French actually were quite progressive in terms of advancing the vote to women, and the, the National Assembly, the Assemblée Nationale, voted repeatedly to grant women the franchise, but the Conservative Senate, which was a non-democratic body made up of people who were basically living 15th century lives, said, absolutely not. Ladies are not going to get to vote, and it took really the Second World War and the whole collapse of the French aristocratic system for the Senate finally to wake up and accept, okay, women can vote. But if we look at other countries, Germany, uh, Italy, uh, the United Kingdom, and so on, women gra are granted the franchise somewhere between the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. When did that discourse arise, do you think? When do you think people started saying that political dignity, not only could it be universally male, but could be universal, period? When do you think that discourse started? 16th century? About 1800, exactly. Mary Wollstonecraft, perhaps the first major figure to write a whole book, and the purpose of her book was simply to say, women are not irrational compared to men. They have the same rational capacities. The only reason women don't appear to have the same, as it were, rational competencies is that you deprive them of the education that, you that, that people require in order to develop those rational competences. You can't tell women they're not allowed to go to school and then say, well, we're not going to give them the vote because they are uneducated. That's inherently ridiculous position. Starting from Wollstonecraft at the end of the, 19th, end of the 18th century, sorry, and then gaining speed all through the 19th century, this discourse emerges, becomes irresistible, and all of a sudden, the paradigm shifts. And that paradigm shift 
to, I cannot stress this enough, if you had asked a woman in 1700, not all women of course, but most women, if you'd asked them in 1700, do you deserve political dignity? What would the woman have said, do you think? No, because I have my little lady brain and I can't handle all those complex things and so on, right? It's a way you think of yourself in the context of the paradigm. If the paradigm defines you in this way, you define yourself in that way. And it took 150 years to escape to a different paradigm and the paradigm shifts. And we see this over and over and over again in our modern era. In fact, the modern era is, should we say, adept at replacing outmoded dysfunctional paradigms with better ones. 300 years ago, 200 years ago, you could look at somebody with darker skin and think, not human being, but property. Someone who should be put into a market and simply sold as chattel goods. Now, starting in the, in the middle of the 19th century, what did we recognize? Slavery is an inherent wrong, universally evil, and therefore must be extirpated from all societies that wish to claim some amount of human decency. And so we have discarded a paradigm that sees or is able to see human beings as property in favor of one that sees human beings with respect to their human dignity. But when you're living inside of one of these paradigms, your ability to see beyond that, in most cases, is very constrained. And you lead the life that the paradigm allows you to lead. But the challenge that we have is when we are faced with, when we can perceive directly the contradictions inside one paradigm, we have a kind of obligation, I feel, to raise our voices to help further that discourse. There are a lot of problems with this existing market paradigm. I got a lot of issues with the form of capitalism that we practice. It concentrates wealth inordinately in the hands of a tiny number of people. It makes very poor capital allocation decisions, as we're seeing right now. It leaves people to the market. We've created this kind of idea of the people subordinate to the market, as we saw in our reading from Polanyi. We have replaced or substituted the social function for a market function and asked people to just sort it out themselves. It's given us many great things as well. I don't want to deny that. But there are a lot of problems with this existing paradigm. However, none of those problems, neither the problem of wealth inequality nor the problems of capital allocation, come anywhere close, anywhere close to the fundamental problem that it presents, namely, if our capitalist market system continues to operate as it has been operating, almost all the biomass of the planet will die. And that is an unacceptable outcome, no matter what your politics, no matter what your ideology, upbringing, background, or perspective. That is simply an unacceptable outcome. So when you, sitting in this room, born into a system, you didn't ask to be born, it's not your fault, Let's be clear, right? It's not like you were sitting there somewhere up in the, in the great waiting room of children waiting to be born. Like, yeah, I'd like to be born now, please. Didn't happen, right? So through some random accident of copulation, here you are. And now you're stuck with the mess that others have made for you. So your challenge is, what do you do about it? And the first thing you do is you recognize the impossibility of the system. And secondly, you raise your voice in such a way as to articulate the impossibility of the system. And third, you contribute as you can to the rise or the development of a new discourse, not one that you will be able to implement, but a new discourse that can then come along and evaluate the existing paradigm as inadequate or insufficient and replace it with another one. And I would go so far as to say, replace it with a better one, because broadly speaking, paradigm shifts take inadequate paradigms and replace them with better ones in a kind of Hegelian dialectical process of progression. And that's the purpose of this class, is to remind us that when you're inside of one system, it's not a universal, 
It's not a universal feature of human thinking, of human self-organization. It's simply a convention that we've created. And if we are capable of creating conventions, we're also capable of shifting or moving or changing those conventions. And that's the challenge that we, that we have. I myself, I have to say, I don't have the hubris to think what it will be. I don't know what the next paradigm will be. I don't get to make that decision. I'm stuck in this one. And so are you. I doubt that you will be able to make that decision. But it doesn't prevent you from raising your voice to point out the inadequacies of the existing paradigm so that those who come after you can take what you've done and then build or plan or erect something better. And my final point about paradigms is this. When you're living in a paradigm that's replaced a previous one, so for example, we're living in a market paradigm that replaced a feudal paradigm of economic and social organization. When you're looking at a previous paradigm from the existing one, you can't imagine how people ever would have chosen to live according to that system. None of us is sitting here thinking, you know, those feudal peasant farmers had it so good with their near starvation existence, their endemic poverty, their inability to read or write. Oh, those guys had it so good. Absolutely not. So when you're existing in one paradigm, you look back, you always think, oh my God, how did people live that way? And I guarantee you, it's a safe thing to guarantee because I'll be dead, but I guarantee you that when this existing paradigm collapses under its own internal contradictions, whatever the paradigm is that follows and people look back at this period, they will be amazed that this is how we chose to live our lives. When people say living 200 years from now, look back on this, what do you think they're going to say? We know what they're going to say because we can do the same thing. This class, insofar as it has a point, and I'm not sure that it does, but insofar as it has a point is to remind us in the different examples that we've seen, the different forms, the different conventions that we've seen established, the different ways that people have led their lives that seem very remote and very foreign to our own, simply to remind us that although the paradigm we're living in is irresistible to us, defining the choices we get to make, creating priorities for us, and essentially circumscribing our liberty to act, that nonetheless, it's just a convention, and like all conventions, it can change.